Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm Daniel Ramey. This week, Kristen Hayes and I team up to interview Phil Sharp, former Indiana congressman, former president of RFF, and current non-resident fellow at the Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy. Kristen and I will ask Phil to share his thoughts on the Green New Deal, the ambitious set of proposals aimed at tackling climate change, inequality, and more. Phil will give us his take on the pros and cons of the approach from a political perspective, as well as share his broader thoughts about the ability of our political system to deal with big, complex challenges like climate change. Stay with us. Phil, hello. Welcome back to RFF. It is always a pleasure to see you. Well, great to be back. This place is very dynamic, and I'm glad to be a part of things. Good, good. You have such a wealth of expertise on energy and environment topics. I feel like there are many things we could have asked you to talk about on the podcast, but we are going to focus today's conversation on the Green New Deal. Uh, but before I do that, we always like to introduce our listeners to our guests a little bit more. And as a congressman from Indiana for many years, and in many other roles in your life, you've had the opportunity to think about lots of different types of issues, and yet energy and environment has has been a focus of your career as well. So how did you first uh, sort of focus your energies, no pun intended, I make a lot of puns on this podcast, um, but how did you end up focusing on, on energy environment as part of your legislative career? Well, it was uh, serendipitous. Uh, I was uh, like the class of legislators that just came into Washington. I was swept in town by the scandal of Watergate. So mm-hmm. I was known as a Watergate baby. That meant I was a Democrat representing a Republican district mm-hmm. uh, in Indiana, which was true for the 20 years that I was there. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were many openings as a result of the increase in the Democratic majority on the various committees. And the one that I appealed to get on was called uh, the Interstate and Foreign Commerce Committee, now the Energy and Commerce Committee. Hmm. Uh, And the reason I did that was because a graduate student friend of mine at Georgetown University Mm -hmm. had been one of the staff members on a reform committee of Congress that had reset the jurisdictions in the committees. And he said, that's a good one, (laughs) since I (laughs) wasn't going to get on appropriations or ways and means. So I took it. But then we had transformed the rules of the House, undermining the seniority system very significantly in Mm -hmm. the opening caucus. And uh, that meant we got to select our subcommittees as they became open for the Mm -hmm. first time in history. And uh, I uh, I knew that I wasn't going to get on health subcommittee because everybody was going to bid on that. And I bid on energy and, and uh, uh, power subcommittee, which John Dingell was just becoming the chairman of. Now, what you also have to understand is the context of the time. First of all, like most members, I knew nothing about the topic or very <laughs> little. It hadn't been a matter of study of mine. It wasn't a high crisis in our congressional district. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't campaign on the issue. But it had flooded into the national arena because of what was called the oil, the Arab oil embargo mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. 1973. And remember, I ran, in, I ran three times, but in 74, I won mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. <laughs> And so it was a high visible uh, proposition on the national agenda, and it would Mm -hmm. be for the next 10, 15, actually for almost 30 years, but for 15 years it was serious, so that it meant we were constantly uh, legislating, always having hearings every, at least every few weeks Mm -hmm. uh, in this subcommittee. And then we, the major pieces of legislation flowed out of it. So I just became engaged, and I 
had been advised this, but then I began to realize it, that if you want to have influence in Congress, there are different ways that different people do it. Mm -hmm. But one of them is get focused, develop some specialization, Mm -hmm. get known for that, and you begin to hopefully uh, have a a greater impact. Mm -hmm. And by virtue of staying with it, then I later became chairman of that subcommittee, one other one before that, and and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. It's particularly valuable for me to hear that because... I feel like I should have asked you that question over the many years that I've actually known you, but it's great to hear. So, um, well, my father never asks. But <laughs> uh, so, so let's turn to the topic at hand. So there has been a lot of discussion over the past, well, particularly in the past few weeks, but even before that, over the past few months, about something called the Green New Deal. Um, and I want to just remind our listeners what exactly that is. So I'll just run through a little bit of what what I know, and then hopefully you can augment that and, and probably correct some things too. But um, there was a piece from Lisa Friedman in the New York Times where I think she gives a nice succinct summary of what it is. And it is a congressional resolution that lays out a grand plan for tackling climate change. So it's not a piece of legislation. It's still in the resolution stage, but it's quite ambitious. It covers um, it covers goals associated with vast swaths of the economy, from uh, clean energy and uh, sort of mobilizing clean energy over a very accelerated ten year time frame. Um, it deals with building retrofits. It deals with transformation of the transportation sector, and um, but it also covers a number of issues that are beyond just energy. And in fact, the closing lines of the resolution reference providing all people of the United States with high quality health care, affordable, safe and adequate housing, uh, economic security, and then, of course, clean water, clean air, healthy and affordable food and access to nature. So it is an ambitious proposal. Um, are there other big pieces of it that I'm missing? How else would you define as you understand it to be now? Well, I, I think... Two quick things. One is to help people be sure they understand the resolution means that nothing about it, even if it's adopted by both houses of Congress, which is highly improbable it will be, but nothing about it sets in place authorities that cause action by people, by investors, by consumers, Mm -hmm. in industry. It is a sense of what the country ought to do. Mm -hmm. It is really a political manifesto in that regard. Mm, You rarely see that uh, in Congress in something that has so broad a goals. And that's sort of the second comment I would make, uh, uh, again, not correcting, but adding to what you said, mm-hmm. which is I look at it and you're looking at it and most people are as, well, this is because we're interested in climate. Mm-hmm. And what is this about climate? But um, uh, AOC, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, pointed out the other day, wait a minute, the first goals in there are really about social transformation. Mm-hmm. They're really goals about how to deal with inequality, unemployment, opportunity. And they are tied then, or the goals are embedded together. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. this, uh, and, and which, by the way, uh, those are issues to be raised. But when you get down to serious legislating or serious regulating at EPA or anywhere else, those goals are not the central piece. There are there probably won't be authorities that actually match to those uh, massive social goals. Mm-hmm. And of course, the social goals are in part what some of the critique. Uh, and criticism is, is uh, f- focused on. Mm-hmm. So partly it's, it's uh, just keeping in perspective that that this is a broad range. Uh, and I, I think one can intellectually begin to pull it apart in various ways, and we might do that in this conversation. Mm-hmm. 
you know, looking over the resolution myself, it's, you know, House Resolution 109, if people want to go look it up. Um, you know, some of the provisions in there are are very ambitious, uh, as Kristen laid out, and some of the more specific goals that are articulated in terms of energy and environmental policy, they include, you know, achieving 100% uh, what they term clean, renewable, and zero emissions energy sources sort of doesn't rule out nuclear, but doesn't exactly rule it in either. Uh, talks about upgrading all existing buildings to achieve their maximum efficiency in terms of energy, water, and other priorities. Um, you know, there's a variety of other sort of goals that are laid out there. How do you think about those specific policy proposals? And, um, you know, do you see those proposals advancing the conversation of climate policy in a helpful way or, or not? Well, uh Again, there's sort of two different parts to that. One is if we look at the uh, substance, they obviously have drawn on a number of the sectors of the economy in which there needs to be action if we're going to get serious about cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Right. So that's a plus that they aren't just looking at you know automobiles or just looking at buildings or just looking at the electric sector. And uh, I think most of us that have dealt with this issue understand this is a very broad-based proposition within our economy that where we need multiple kinds of, of action. Uh, it is interesting that as to whether it helps or hurts. Well, it's, I think it helps in this regard. The positives, let me put it that way, and then I'll talk more about the limitations. The positives are that, one, it articulates a, a deep sense of urgency uh, uh, about this issue. It also posits the idea that this is not a trade-off that has to be, uh, you know, yes or no on the economy. In other words, that we can pursue economic and social goals and clean up uh, and deal with this. And so much of the debate over the last 15 years has tried to make a stark, especially the critics have tried to make it very stark that the cost of doing anything about reducing emissions is a sacrifice of the people in the low income sector. It right. is a sacrifice of economic growth. It is a sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And so this is, this is recognizing what, frankly, scholars at RFF and elsewhere have been pointing out that uh, wisely crafted policy uh, actually can have many economic pluses and it's not all economic minuses. Uh, it may it may hurt certain places, but it's not going to hurt universally our ability to prosper and to share in the wealth in this country. Now, the issue when we turn to the proposals, I think the best way to think about this is we are going to see multiple variations uh, of this thing come out. And already we're beginning to see presidential candidates and others who... Uh, to be honest with you, rather impulsively and precipitously <laughs> signed on because they, I think they thought that this was going to win them points with uh, the particular progressive forces that are, are advocating this. Um, mm -hmm. But all of them are slowly coming to the recognition, and everybody will, that has to get down to the nitty-gritty, that, well, wait a minute, the label may be good, some of these basic ideas are right, but now we have to talk about seriously what works in the economy, what works in our system of government, how do we proceed, and that gets more complicated. So on the one hand, it can be taken for some people as an inspiration, as a, a drive uh, that we might turn to in a moment, uh, you know, this 10 years uh, clean energy in the um, uh, electric sector, if you, if you like. 
yeah, what, what do you think about that idea? So at, near the beginning of the resolution, it refers to, a, uh, as Kristen said, I think the 10 year national mobilization um, and, uh, you know, and then talks about eliminating pollution and greenhouse gases as much as technologically feasible. That word technologically, I found interesting uh, because a lot of things are technologically feasible that may not be economically or politically feasible or desirable uh, for other reasons. Um, so how do, you, how do you think about that part of it? Well, I didn't follow all the developments that preceded the resolution, but I'm aware of some of them. And uh, already the resolution recognizes, as it sought, because it, there was an effort to reach out to labor, to various progressive forces, to democratic mm -hmm. forces before this thing was put together. This wasn't just dreamed up by uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez or, or uh, a senator from Massachusetts. Uh, it was um, actually somewhat negotiated. And that's why when you look at it now compared to before, one is the, the original goal on electricity was 10 years of renewable energy. Right. And already they've conceded, as you articulated, without saying it, that as California has done in their uh, setting of a goal in, the, uh, in the 2045, that uh, you could count nuclear energy as a clean energy. You could even count uh, natural gas with carbon capture and storage as a emissions-free. It's beginning to recognize what, again, scholars at RFF have tried to say, let's keep focused on what is the goal. The goal is the reduction in these emissions. It isn't a specific technology. In fact, there's a, there's a, a risk of... Uh, choosing the wrong technology or insufficient policy when you get overly focused on, well, we'll only allow X, Y, and Z. So already they were adjusting, and you raised the question of technology. Technological uh, credibility was not a part of the original discussions. It was just, you're going to do all these buildings, you're going to do this and that, and everybody kept pressing them. The one that's not there that uh, here again at RFF would have been an instant uh, question is, what is economically feasible or what is cost-effective? Right. Let's look at it from a serious point of view. They've avoided that language, but let, let's be very clear, there is no way any Congress, I don't care what it is, is going to be so radical that it will just throw overboard all consideration of what are the economic costs. Mm -hmm. Right. And Phil, can I ask you just, sure. maybe it's worth bringing up that there was a, in addition to the formal resolution, um, H resolution HR 109, uh, there was a memo released by, or a fact sheet, I guess it's called, by Representative Ocasio-Cortez's office. Now, since then, um, she's I think her office has pulled back from that slightly, saying that it was released prematurely. So I, I don't want to read too much into the language that was in there, but that particular fact sheet does get a little bit more explicit about non-nuclear and uh, non-carbon pricing, sort of very lukewarm reactions to both of those solutions. Would you interpret how the resolution eventually got published as a, sort of a similar broadening or flexibility um, from perhaps where they started? Well, the scuttlebutt I picked up in Washington, and again, you have to take that with a grain of salt, <laughs> is that there were immediate, uh, vehement uh, calls from some Democrats, some labor, some others uh, on the overstepping of the resolution by in her her office's interpretation because mm. they were not willing, uh, they're, they're, they're just barely on board, some of these people to begin with. So I, I think the thing, the, the way to think about this is this is going to be a quite a developing proposition. Mm -hmm. And frankly, we'll begin to see other people that are more likely to be the leaders. Uh, 
Now, I don't know uh, how uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez is going to develop as a leader, but right now she's uh, she's not what I would call an inside legislator. Part of that's because she's new, and that's mm-hmm. fine. I'm not criticizing her in this, but but then people have to step up inside. It's the same way in the Senate. Now, Senator Markey may become quite a legislator, but to be frank about it, there are other people there, Senator Whitehouse and others, that are already deeply into trying to figure out this and build a broader political coalition inside the Congress as well as out. Mm -hmm. And so I suspect the leadership of these things, well, first of all, it will expand to lots of other people. And so I'd be very careful. I mean, the opponents want to focus immediately on any errors and on this and that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of the folderall of our politics. So uh, I take that somewhat with a grain of salt. I applaud those that are trying to get some kind of action. But if I were having to legislate, mm-hmm. I'd be much more discerning about <laughs> uh, what some of these proposals are. Yeah. yeah. So um, one other question and sort of drawing on your your experience in in the legislature phil and, and you know paying attention to these issues for for a long time you know what what elements here in the green new deal are new uh that that you see what elements have we seen before and are there you know are there historical precedents that can tell us something about the viability of a plan that's ambitious as uh, as the green new deal well this this uh, I haven't reread it in weeks and recent weeks. I read it when it was introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I may be in error on what I'm about to say, but my impression is I don't think there's anything there that's actually new. Uh, I think what it is is an intensification of the goals. For example, the notion that we ought to transform our buildings People have been talking about this since the 1970s, right. uh, and uh, and the issue is should the federal government try to step in and, and take over state uh, formal control over uh, building standards? Building standards only apply to ex- a new uh, construction. Uh, so the question is, is what can you do for old construction? Well, we have a number of uh, financial incentives on the tax side that some people thought, uh, even in the last, in 2005, 2007, I think it's in one of those bills as well as it was back in the 70s, tax credits designed to try to get people to upgrade their things. That is a very hard thing to get done with the, uh, uh, to, to overcome this. So what's new is the drive, uh, to tr- the theory that we're going to be able to do this. When we look in the electric sector, well, well one thing that actually was in uh, some of the uh, Senate bills before this came up, but uh, really has to do with um, uh, how to incentivize the electrification of uh, transportation, meaning automobiles. Uh, And that was to provide some kind of incentive to the states to build infrastructure uh, for, you know, uh, recharging stations, recharging or, stations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but again california has been doing that for 10 15 years uh th- these are not new so this is not to criticize it is just to say what they ran into uh like everybody does is whoops we've been thrashing about on lots of these things we've been trying lots of things one of the things they call for as a matter of equity is uh, let's uh, uh provide good assistance, energy assistance to low-income people. Mm-hmm. Right. It's known as LIHEAP. We put it in place in the 1970s. One of the most uh, clashing arguments was the formula for distribution to the states. <laughs> Should the southern states who depend on air conditioning get as much as the northern states that have to fight the cold weather? I mm-hmm. mean, th- these are these are natural political things that can be worked out. Mm-hmm. But again, it goes at this business that we do need 
the intensity, and we do need a seriousness, and we, of course, need to get rid of, uh, you know, this White House that uh, has been untouched by climate science. Yeah, and just to <laughs> confirm, so that's the... LIHEAP stands for the low income. Low co- I can't remember what the, the acronym means, program? but it's low income energy assistance. Okay. Now, okay. much of it is it's funneled by states, but different states do it different ways. Some of them just allow the electric utility to provide a, a certain amount of free power or reduced power to an mm-hmm. electric user who doesn't have much income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Phil, I think you're you're intimating this, but you know, one of the things that does seem new here is about the scale and is in fact about the merging of a set of already ambitious energy and climate goals with a set of other broader um, social equity and inclusion and employment goals. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. And again, given your history as a lawmaker, Mm -hmm. what are the, what are the benefits and what are the potential pitfalls of merging those energy and environment goals with the broader socioeconomic goals? Well, well, probably the benefit, and this is not across the the political spectrum, but the benefit on the left is that it brings people into the conversation about climate who might have been very skeptical. Mm-hmm. Uh, after all, uh, the environmental adjustment movement is, uh, it's been around for a while, especially in California, but it's fairly new on the national scene. Mm-hmm. And those meaning that, that, wait a minute, this isn't just about clean air and clean water. It's about our backyard because we're stuck in the worst place mm-hmm. and whatnot. And the, the, that a lot of the environmental laws in that sense appear to be unfair because they seem to help the, the uh, certain parts of the country and not mm-hmm. others. The accuracy of all that can be argued, but the question is, is bringing these people into the conversation and to recognize it is a politically useful thing to do. Mm-hmm. Now, frankly, mm-hmm. our political system is not, doesn't swallow whole such gigantic propositions. Mm. So uh, what is likely to happen is that, let's say we get a president that actually believes we ought to do something and that is on, on the progressive side of the fence, they may articulate some of these uh, desirable things, mm-hmm. They may, but they will come up with some kind of recommendations on climate, which will... Uh, probably say, well, it, we're going to have, a, if, we, if we have a carbon tax, we're going to also see that some of that money goes into LAHEAP that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. We're going to see that it, it gets a tax reform that is more favorable to the lower income uh, section of the country mm-hmm. uh, than the high end. Uh, and there, there are ways they can incorporate those values into the final proposition. But it's very hard also, even if you take this panoply of proposals on climate, to package them all up in one big fell swoop uh, decision. Obviously, Wax and Markey attempted to do that, but it didn't cover everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a complicated legislating process. Now, here is where somewhat of our experience of the 1970s is, is, is uh, relevant to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that because of our dependence on foreign oil and the fears about inflation, about the economy, about the national security, a whole bunch of issues were piled up uh, of concerns. There was a drive to transform our energy system. Mm-hmm. It was most elaborately articulated in the uh, proposals by President Carter. Uh, the House representatives actually set up a select committee. Mm, sounds not familiar. Like the, not like yeah. the committee that's just a study. This was mm-hmm. a select committee with real legislative power. Okay. I was on it in my second term of office. I got on as one of the two junior members mm-hmm. on that committee. And so we did try and we did adopt a number of major proposals. 
But I think the reality that certainly I and others learned is, first of all, there's never just a single goal. And there's always differences of opinion about how to achieve those goals. And so mm -hmm. you get into a complex kind of bargaining inside and outside of the Congress. Uh, and, and that requires some skilled legislative leadership. It requires some skilled uh, presidential leadership. It requires skilled leadership and among the various contending interests mm -hmm. in the country whom one hopes uh, will recognize, be able to keep their eye on the notion that, well, we do have to do something mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. instead of, uh, if I don't get my way, it's the highway. Mm -hmm. and in fact, that's what I would say is one of the things that I would say to people that are excited about the Green New Deal mm -hmm. is not try to diminish their excitement, but try to tell them, please be open to two things. One is when we get into a negotiation, if you make this the absolute litmus test, you will work against the government and the Congress and the society dealing with climate change. Hmm. If, because you will pull out a whole political part of a faction uh, that in, in fact you know, right. is, is going to progress, claim yes. if it's not perfect, I'm not for it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that is a very sanctimonious thing for politicians to do. You see it over and over even today. The other thing is the resolution says nothing about carbon taxes, but I think it's true that some of the voices that have been involved in the development of this have pretty much said they're against carbon taxes, and they see it right. as yeah. against uh, as a, having a socially negative impact for lower-income people. Again, RFF and others have argued these cases, examined them, say, is that real or not? And, and generally, I think the conclusion is that you can compensate for that, and it doesn't have to have that right. impact. Right. It's all about policy design. Yeah. But mm -hmm. I would say to them... Your biggest problem now, and it's been highlighted over and over, is what you're talking about wanting to accomplish requires resources. Mm -hmm. And anybody who thinks you can just, by one change in the tax code, get everything you need for all these things is, again, just crazy. Um, we can do a lot more and take in a lot more revenue to do things. But one of the things that a carbon tax provides is revenue, mm -hmm. part of which can be redistributed to uh, make this tax code fair. Part of it can be redistributed to actually directly help, as we talked earlier, uh, people on LIHEAP. This is a source of resources, so get smart. Don't shut it off. You don't have to come out for it. You don't have to drive for it, but don't close your mind to it. Mm -hmm. Bill, this is fascinating, and it's really nice to have uh, an insider's, a former legislator's take on sort of the pragmatic realities of how a resolution like this might turn into something legislative eventually. Uh, but I want to zoom out and ask one one last big picture question before we turn to our closing feature. So this is a little bit metaphysical, but I figure you can give it a, a good answer, <laughs> as good as answer as anybody. So how does the structure of our government, of the U.S. government, affect our ability to tackle problems that are as vast and... No, is it capable of making the decisions to do something big like this? Right, yeah. That's and, you know, the, problems that are so embedded within our economy right. in many ways. So, uh, First of all, yeah. that is a very important question. And there are all kinds of voices now, and there have been historically, by the way, in the past, who say, well, we don't think this business of checks and balances and, uh, and powerful economic interests can ever you know, solve these problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't uh, get a job done. And therefore, we should turn, the assumption usually is, oh, you turn to something more authoritarian. Mm. Uh, isn't it wonderful the Chinese appear to be making progress? Chinese are doing lots of different things. Some of it's progress, some of it's not, mm. uh, kind of thing. And, and and my answer to that is I put a lot more faith in that once we get this moving, mm -hmm. we will do much better than most. 
And I just don't, I, I don't buy this notion, but others might, that we have to transform the political system, literally the fundamentals of the system now, mm -hmm. before we are able to conquer this policy. I think, uh, I, I just don't buy that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and let me say, that does not mean I don't think there's work to be done on making repairs in our constitutional democracy. We have historically done it over and over and again. But I would just remind you that there was a lot of hand-wringing about whether we could take on the Soviet Union and the communist spread internationally because of our uh, system of government mm -hmm. and our divided system. And they, there was the same thing has come out in almost every kind of uh, proposition. Does mm -hmm. federalism work for us? I would just say right now, I've become more strong, and a lot of Americans have, on having a system of checks and balances because it has prevented these people that are so naive or so uh, politically or economically selfish uh, from getting their way and actually undermining everything. So we have states acting. We have this. Is this the most rational policy? No, but we're, we're th more than 300 million people, and it's a very complex economy. But let's get back to what can be done. The truth is that if we had, I'm just picking this out, I, I, I tend to favor strongly a carbon tax, but not as the exclusive. Mm -hmm. It'll never be the only policy. It shouldn't be the only policy. But I can assure you that that will lead to all kinds of innovation. That will lead to all kinds of people making greedy decisions to uh, avoid the tax or to, or to capture the market that is now uh, available to them. Uh, and those will, that's the dynamism, that's part of the dynamism we want and need in this. This is too big, and the notion that we've got, we can hire enough regulators and enough smart people in Washington to know all the ins and outs of the economy and regulate mm -hmm. everything uh, is just, I think, uh, naive to the extreme. Now, I happen to believe EPA should have done what it did uh, kind of thing. So uh, so I look upon this as we have a lot of ingenuity. We have uh, we ended up with a lot of people. Fortunately, the blowback on uh, President Trump has been terrific by state action, by corporations that we didn't even know that were willing to step up, said, well, wait, we should stay in Paris or wait. We've, we've set in whole new goals for our oil company, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, as to how we'll cut internal emissions and how you do that. Is that enough? No, it isn't. But it means that you can act independently and make a real contribution here without going to the bureaucracy in uh, Beijing and are we are we on board or not mm -hmm. <laughs> with the government uh, kind of thing. So I, I would be very careful to jump to that conclusion. That's not to say that everything works well or there aren't uh, outrageous um, people in the politics uh, and money that uh, is undercutting uh, making the changes. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that's a debate that is playing out, I think, in environmental circles and is likely going to continue, I think, with the different perspectives that are coming to the table in support of sort of different levels of ambition uh, put under the umbrella of the Green New Deal. Well, I think you're right. If I could just interject, pardon me, is, yeah. but I would suggest they're wiser to spend their time on trying to build the political support within the current system of government. Now, that doesn't mean you don't try to get campaign finance reform. I'm not against some of these. It depends on what level of change they want to talk about. But we can all sit around debating some new constitutional system. And uh, I would just say, don't waste your time. <laughs> huh. 
Wow. So, yeah. Well, Phil, you certainly have not wasted our time today or our <laughs> listeners' time. And, you know, we wish we could spend more of it talking to you. Uh, but we are, you know, butting up against our the upper end of our time limit. So, so I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which uh, we call the top of the stack. So kind of what's at the top of your reading stack? Is You know, is there anything that you have read or watched or heard recently uh, related to energy or, or any of the topics we've been talking about today that you've really enjoyed and that you would recommend to our listeners? I jump around uh, so much in my reading. Uh, I, I do want to start on Hal Harvey's book, which is an analysis of uh, various proposals. Uh, although I'll be honest about it, I suspect Hal is uh, arguing that we have the technology we need, we just have to uh, implement it. And it's a, it's a strategy that I think is uh, limited. And Hal is extremely capable. I shouldn't get into an argument here without reading his book. <laughs> but, but it goes to the issue that over time, we do not know how all this is going to work out economically, technologically, or politically. If there's anything that we've learned over the last 40 years is predicting those things is quite questionable. And so you want to keep your eyes open and your policy open to innovation, to the possibility of having tools in the future, which may mean fusion, which may mean carbon capture and storage, which may mean a whole new set of windmills, uh, whatever it means. Uh, be careful about thinking you can put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Well, that's a great recommendation. So, Phil, thank you so much for joining Kristen and I today on Resources Radio to talk about the Green New Deal and, you know, many other things sprouting from, from that topic. It's been really great to get your perspective. Thank you. Happy to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think. So please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.